0: picks a hand says, are you okay? Do you need help? And then in six seconds, a second person who was walking around there and who did nothing joined in. And so the message is, be the one. Be the one who asked the question, do you need help? Hello and welcome to The
1: Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your Daily Helping. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and today's guest is legendary. Dr. Philip Zimbardo is a professor at Stanford University and the creator of the well-known Stanford Prison Experiment. Dr. Zimbardo has spent over 50 years teaching and studying psychology. He currently lectures worldwide and is actively working to promote his nonprofit, The Heroic Imagination Project. He has written over 60 books and has over 600 publications. His current research looks at the psychology of heroism. He asks... What pushes some people to become perpetrators of evil, while others act heroically on behalf of those in need? Prior to his heroism work, he served as president of the American Psychological Association and designed and narrated the award-winning 26-part PBS series, Discovering Psychology. Amongst his very well-known publications are Shyness, The Lucifer Effect, The Time Cure, The Time Paradox, and most recently, Man Interrupted. His TED Talk on evil has been seen by millions of people around the world. Dr. Z, as you've asked me to call you, it is awesome to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, Dr. Mitchell. So what I want to do is jump back to something that's in your bio because you've done so many things over your career in the field of psychology. But what we're focusing on today, your work with the Heroic Imagination Project. And I want to take a step back because I know you've done some research into the psychology of heroism, specifically what makes some people do evil and what makes some people act on behalf of others. So talk to us about how you started doing that research and what the evidence showed, what the research showed in that regard.
0: Yeah, I should mention that the transformation from spending much of my academic life at Stanford studying how good people turn evil featured in the Stanford prison experiment and earlier research I did on de-individuation, meaning what happens when people feel anonymous, that um, I had presented that research at a 2007 TED conference in Monterey. And essentially, it was called The Psychology of Evil. Six million people have watched it. And after going through the evil part, I switched and said, we now know that using basic social psychological principles, we can make most good people, the majority, do bad things. However, I want to uh, put put forth... The notion that, is it possible for ordinary people to be inspired and trained to be everyday heroes? And that was a provocative question. And many people in that audience, uh, uh, Robin Williams, the comic, uh, Al Gore, uh, former vice president, and Pierre Amidiar, he said, it's a great idea. You should start a foundation uh, to study it, to, to uh, create um, uh, materials ordinary people get heroes. So that's what I did. So in 2008, I started in San Francisco, the heroic imagination project or HIP. And it's a program designed to teach people starting with high school and college kids, but now we're expanding to institutional corporations, how to stand up, speak out and take action in challenging situations in your life. And what I've done is I've created six educational lessons or modules each organized around a basic principle of social psychology, like how do you transform passive bystanders into active heroes? How do you transform people who have a fixed static mindset into having a dynamic growth mindset? How do you change people... Who actively discriminate against others into caring and being open to differences. So these are some of the programs. And each program is about twenty or thirty pages. But the key is they're all built around provocative videos. So essentially we have we have uh, samples of these on our website online heroicimagination. I think it's. org, and then schools license the, the material one, one, two, three lessons, and then I do training of teachers or trainers, and I train them uh, to continue. And now we're about to develop online training and on, online delivery of our materials. Uh, and so when we began. Uh, we also started doing research on heroism. And one of the first things we did, we had a national probability sample about maybe six six years ago. We simply said, here's our definition of heroes. Heroes are people who help others in need or they defend a moral cause. And what's different between heroism and altruism, heroism involves a potential risk to life or limb, or if you're a whistleblower, uh, often it means you don't get promoted or you get fired. Then we asked people, have you ever done any heroic deed? And we gave examples. And it was a national probability sample, 1,500 answered. And of those, only 20% said, yes, I have done any of these heroic deeds. And then we analyzed, who are those people? And what we found out is men were more likely than women because men were more likely to be first responders. But curiously, when heroism involves a social network, a group of people not alone are helping, women are as likely or more likely than men to help. The most amazing, so the more educated you are, curiously, the more likely you are uh, to, be a, um, uh, to be a hero. You're more likely to be a hero if you live in an urban area rather than a rural area. I mean, stuff has to be happening around you. And then the most dramatic finding is African-American men and women were twice as likely as Caucasians to have done a heroic deed. And now we're following up on that to see, is it simply that they have more opportunity or we think it has to do with they have more empathy. That is having been in many situations where they have been the victim, they are ready to come to the aid of others in need others being anybody, um, Caucasian, Asian, or or Black people. So so that's the beginning of our research. And now we're branching out. Uh, I'm working with a man named Scott Allison, who you might want to interview sometime. He has a hero research program uh, at the University of Virginia uh, that he runs with um, Al Gothels. And they, they have a whole team of young people, students, who, who do, are regularly doing all kinds of research on the nature of heroism. One of
1: the things, Dr. Z, that you said I found so interesting is your definition of heroism versus altruism. Mm-hmm. In, and that essentially good people may not be motivated to help others because they fear of the risk they fear the consequences of helping others and uh, a lot of people are probably familiar with the bystander effect we've all heard the story of the woman screaming in the in the city and and tons of people heard her but but didn't help her
0: that was actually 60 years ago was kitty genevieve new york city yeah. And it's we recently at the American Psychological Association, we had a whole session about Kitty Genovese, about there's a new movie, there's several new movies about her. But again, we should tell your listeners, remind them that is, uh, it was a situation where she was being attacked in the middle of the night by a, apparently a crazy guy named Winston Mosley. He was just a crazy guy who just, just when she stepped off a bus, just began to follow her and began to stab her and she's screaming and it was clear some people heard uh and did not respond did not come to her aid and finally he killed her so that so so that was um, uh, the start of the bystander effect research so two of my buddies in new york John Darley, who was at New York University where I was at the time, and Bib Latne, who was at Columbia, uh, they started a whole research program on understanding the nature of the bystander effect. Why is it that the more people present paradox in an emergency, paradoxically, the less likely anyone is to help? And that means if there's as few as three or more strangers, they form a social norm which says do nothing, mind your own business. And and so they did a lot of research in different settings that, that proved that over and over again. And it didn't matter whether the subjects were intelligent college students or not. And what was always surprising to me is when you talk about social norms, it means you're in a situation where you want other people to like you, you want other people to respect you, and you see what other people are doing, your buddies, your friends, family, and you go along to get along. You do what they're doing. But here are strangers In in some cases, you're never going to see them again in your life. You're on a subway station. Somebody falls on the tracks. Everybody looks and nobody helps. People are going to get on the next subway and and disappear. But still, that um, silent social norm of do nothing, mind your business dominates. And people who, if they were alone, would help. Now they're in this silent uh, majority and they do nothing. Wow. And
1: one of the modules that the Heroic Imagination Program addresses is to help change people from passive bystanders to heroes. How do you do that? We engage
0: people in our, in our program through provocative videos, because everybody lives in a visual world now, and nobody can sit and listen to a lecture. So we begin to say on our program, today we're going to talk about something that all of you have experienced uh, in your life at some time or another. It's called the bystander effect. There's people who need your help kids are being bullied, uh, people fall down steps, people who uh, slip and fall, you know, getting out of the bathtub, uh, family members, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We want you to think about this and we're going to stimulate you to begin thinking about it. We show a three minute video that I made in London of a woman lying on the steps at a busy railroad station at Liverpool Station in London and the clock starts. So it's an actress, but she's lying there and she's well dressed. And she, she, we, uh, she's appearing to be unconscious. And a clock starts. And the voiceover says, "How long before anybody helps?" Clock goes for four minutes. Thirty-five people pass by within one foot of her, and no one stops. To they all look, and no one stops to help. Uh, and then, the, then we the, the um, video stops. And then we say, "Have you ever been in a situation like this? Uh, what What did you do? What would you do? What would you do in this situation?" 100% of the people say, I would help. Well, how come when you're looking in, everybody says I would help, but when you're in that situation, uh, you are numb to helping. Well, that's called the bystander effect. But now let's watch scene two. Now what you see is some guy passing by a construction work who stops, goes over to her, picks her hand, says, are you okay? Do you need help? And then in six seconds, a second person who was walking around there and who did nothing joined in. And so the message is be the one. Be the one who asked the question, do you need help? But now in our program, we say, okay, now let's do some critical thinking. When should you, suppose it was a dangerous situation. Suppose somebody was bleeding. Suppose two people were arguing. Suppose there was a, a fight. Then what do you do? You still have to do something but you, we want you to be a wise and effective hero. So in this case, you call for help. You dial 911, uh, you call other people to help. But then then we say, well, what are all the reasons you don't help us when it's not even dangerous? Then we say, well, here are the reasons. There's something called the spotlight effect. You don't want to stand out. You don't want to be different. You don't want to look dumb. Uh, and then we show you how to diffuse that. Uh, and, you know, and so our program it's built around these provocative videos. But instead of a teacher lecturing, what we really have is we divide every, every group into dyads. So we ask a question and we say, okay, talk to each other, share your ideas. What would you do? What, uh, what could be done? Or we have them actually write out, the, write out their answers. And then we continue by saying, okay, let's, let's put you on the spot. When have you been in a situation where somebody needed your help and you didn't help? Who was it? When was it? How do you feel? Shame. When were you in a situation somebody needed your help and you did help? Who was it? When was it? How do you feel? Pride. Now, have you ever needed help and did somebody help you? Describe that. So essentially, our program really is engaging people at really a gut and a cerebral level at the same time. And it's through the videos. It's It's Now, uh, kids working in dyads, we call them, you're part of a hero squad. And we try to have a boy and a girl working together because as separate work I'm doing, guys now live in a virtual reality video world, playing video games, watching porn, and women are excelling. So we want want the positive impact of women uh, to be in a dyad uh, working with a a hero team partner.
1: I love that. And in particular, Dr. Z, I love the fact that you have... This training, which basically brings in these cognitive and emotional pieces together, which, which, as you know, of course, makes it much stronger in terms of the impact. Now, again, I
0: should say that I actually had a fascinating dialogue with the Dalai Lama some years ago on a stage at Stanford. I was the first of a series of researchers uh, who were being funded by the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research to do research on compassion. And they were doing you know, neurobiological studies and pharmacological studies. And I simply said, Your Holiness, I wanna ask a provocative question. It is obvious the world is filled with evil. And while we are waiting for everyone in the world who is evil to complete a, a meditation, compassion training program, don't you think it would, should be possible to transform empathy and altruism which are really cognitive emotional states into active heroism, which is a civic virtue because only action changes things. Compassion, empathy, altruism are are really states of mind and states of emotion, which should be the platform for action. But in fact, in many cases, uh, people who are promoting compassion, they stop there. And, uh, he he, hemmed and he hoard. at the end. He said, probably, because he still believes compassion will win out. And I come from the South Bronx. I come from a place where there were evil men trying to corrupt little kids like me all the time. And it's their job. There are job, there are job guys who are hucksters, pimps, uh, who set up these uh, scam websites in an emergency as in, in Houston and used it in Irma. So there are guys out there who are simply bad. It's mostly men who... who Whose life, whose life is making money, really doing evil. So all I want to say is what we try to do is we try to build on compassion and empathy, caring for other people. In fact, the main part of our program is learn how to be sociocentric because the enemy of heroism is egocentric. It can never be about me or I. It's always about we and us. And that's, that's you know one of the main takeaway messages that we, I try to get across.
1: You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you. And I can't wait to see where you'll go. I love that you were able to get the Dalai Lama to at least somewhat acknowledge your point of view. That's, that's fantastic. Uh, I, I, I want to talk about some of the other modules because you're so interesting. Uh, one of the things you mentioned, Dr. Z, was shifting people from this static position to that of dynamic growth. So how do
0: you do that? Yeah. So this is the work uh, of a wonderful researcher who is my colleague at Stanford. Called Ka- Her name is Carol Dweck. D W E C K. She has a new book so called Mindsets. And she was actually my student in New York in like 1973, part-time. I was teaching at I was teaching at New York University and Moonlighting at Barnard, where she was a student. Uh, and she was brilliant as as a as an undergraduate then. Uh, and essentially what what I've done is I've taken her basic ideas and, again, built them into one of these training programs with the videos, with uh, dy- uh, dyadic interaction. And essentially, what we really say is all of us, including Phil, Phil Zimbardo, Dr. Z, we have fixed mindsets about certain things. So, for example, I am really good at writing. I have written now more than 60 books and more than 600 professional and popular articles. So so that's a lot lot of words. However, I don't do crossword puzzles. I'm not, quote, good at crossword puzzles. Here's a fixed mindset. Because I think that, I never try. Uh, The second thing is um, my whole family are musicians. I love music. I go to jazz concerts all the time. I go to symphony. And I cannot carry a tune. I am an unmusical person. Again, so here are, here are these contradictions. And and therefore, for example, I never try to sing, uh, which I would love to be able to do. And so we all have this. Now, what's terrible about mindsets, it's really the basis of prejudice. Because we also think, many men think, women are not good at technical stuff, at engineering stuff, at math stuff, at coding. Uh, and we have positive things. Asians are really good at, at tech-related things. So, so a fixed mindset is really static. It's, it's really like blinders we put on ourselves and on other people when, in fact, what Carol Dweck shows that we, we show throughout our program, our lesson with videos and, and provocative uh, examples, interactive examples, every single ability, every single talent is improvable with practice and effort. Those are the key words, practice and effort. And when you're just starting out something new, we tr- and so we're trying to get even into elementary schools, So a lot of kids from the very beginning say, hey, I'm not good at math. The key word is yet, Y-E-T. I'm not good at math yet. I'm not good at foreign languages yet. Uh, I'm not good at uh, learning computer coding yet. Yet means that for every ability, there's a timeline. It takes practice. At the beginning, so for many of us, we quit too soon uh, or we begin to label ourselves, I'm not good at X. And therefore, once you say that, you don't want to spend your time doing things that you're not good at. Uh, So our program has really been inspiring a lot. We have lots of evidence that... You know, kids have changed in fundamental ways. And then, of course, we say, bring this home, you know, share this with your parents. So in our program, we have little cartoon-like booklets that kids write their answers. You know, what are you good at? What are you not good at? And then we have a description of how mindset works. And then at the end, the last part of every one of our program is share these ideas. Every student should become a teacher. Every, of course, we know when you have a transmission mindset rather than a reception mindset, you learn the material better. So if, if you know that what you and I are talking about, you're going to have to remember enough of it to tell your friends, your colleagues, your family, you're going to be paying closer attention and you're going to organize the material better. So we, we tell them at the beginning, look at the last page in, in in your booklet. You're going to, at the end of the session, you're going to have to take this home and tell your mother, your father, your boyfriend, girlfriend, the grocer, and we're going to ask you next week when we come back, what did they say about this? So So this is really, for me, the exciting part of our program—you taking, taking something which is uh, a lesson in a restricted area, let's say, of a classroom, of an office—and you're sending it out to the world.
1: That's fantastic, and, and I love that you're just your your module, as you guys officially refer to it, is the mindset intervention. But essentially, that you're doing this with young people is so exciting because you're taking kids who have an "I can't" position and changing it to yes, I can do it. Maybe just I'm not great at it yet, but I'm going to get there.
0: Yeah. See, but again, as I said, with prejudice, it's also like a stereotype threat imposed on yourself. So this is the work of my, my former colleague, Claude Steele. So again, lots of black kids say, I'm not good at school. School is a white kid's thing. I'm not good at this. I'm good at rap, etc." Et but but essentially, here's something, before you even go to school, you're you're already putting that fixed mindset on yourself, meaning your, your mind is not going to be open to what is exciting in le- learning and teaching and sharing information with other kids. So that's why, you know, we're saying changing these mindsets is not only at the individual level, but we have to think about at the communal level. How do you begin to change these mindsets? So we be suddenly beginning to do it with girls and coding. So in Silicon Valley, near where I live, near, near Stanford, the, many of the high tech companies are having special program coding for girls. And as soon as they begin, they say, "Of course, I could do this," you know. But before they begin, they say, "No, coding is for guys. It's not for gals." Uh, and I'm saying nobody's done this. I think some people are doing a similar thing for black kids, saying education is your the only way out of poverty. It's the only way out of the ghetto. It's the only way that you're going to live a happy, full life by filling your mind with new ideas, with new thoughts, with new inspiration. And, and so we need more organizations to take these programs, again, not only in, into the Black community, but also similar in the Hispanic community uh, in uh, in America.
1: And you have talked about, as one of your modules as well, moving from discrimination to growth which in terms of implementation is a little bit different than the mindset intervention that we've been speaking about for a few minutes talk uh, talk to us about shifting from discrimination to growth
0: the mindset is shifting from static fixed mindset to dynamic growth mindset the next the next module the next lesson is how do you transform the negative of prejudice into the positive understanding and acceptance. So we are all prejudiced around the world, every country. Uh, In fact, there's an article just just the other day, I don't know if it's a New York Times or forum, saying America is becoming more prejudiced than ever. So essentially, our program really begins with, think about who you are as a person. Think about uh, your family. Think about communities that your family lives in. Think about where did your family come from. Uh, do they have an identity? Is it an ethnic identity? Is it a racial identity? Think about who you are. What, what what are the communities you are in? Are you know so you're male, you're female, uh, you're gay, you're lesbian, you're, you're transsexual. Uh, you have blue eyes. So essentially, it's uh, our program is is dynamic because it says you know who are you, and how do you connect with the world. And who are the people around you that you want to be connected to? Which groups would you like to be part of that you're not? And how do you get access to them? So, so essentially, it's really, we begin not talking about, gee, how prejudice is bad. You know, who are you? Let's begin to say, who are you? What do you want in life? And then we begin to say, well, what are the barriers that between who you are and what you want are your goals in life? Now, sometimes those barriers are, as we said in the previous lesson, you have to learn more, you have to practice more, you have to get more knowledge, you have to get more years of schooling, or you have to grow up more. You need more muscle uh, if you want to become, move from an okay athlete to a good athlete. You have to practice. You need you need muscles, and or you need to learn how to be in a team. But in some cases, your access to a, a desirable future is blocked because. People have negative views about other people. So, in some cases, people will say men are not good at anything emotional. It was a joke white guys can't jump, so white guys can't play basketball. The limits other people place on you because of your race, ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera, are are limits that we want to acknowledge, we want you to become aware of. And then that's the main part of this lesson. We're going to oppose those. And then we present a video of an incredible social psychological experiment done by a third grade school teacher many years ago, Mrs. Jane Elliott in Riceville, Iowa, an agricultural community where all kids are white and Protestant. And she was actually teaching about, oh, it was Brotherhood Week. Uh, And I think Martin Luther King had just died and she was trying to convey to the kids how somebody could be killed simply because of his skin color. And she came up with this brilliant exercise. She said, uh, I have new news for you. I have just discovered that blue-eyed people are special and brown-eyed people are inferior. And then she said, and then she took just a minute or two. George Washington had blue eyes. And Billy's father has brown eyes. And uh, Billy said his father hit him yesterday. She goes through and she makes all negative things with brown. And then she said, and therefore, in our class, brown-eyed kids, so now here's so that the prejudice is blue is good, brown is bad. So that's a, a, this distinctive prejudicial idea. And then prejudice has discrimination. Discrimination is the is the behavior that follows from prejudiced attitudes and values. So he said, therefore, brown-eyed kids have to sit in back of the class. Brown-eyed kids have to go to lunch after blue-eyed kids. But also uh, sometimes. Brown-eyed kids don't open their eyes very much. So blue-eyed kids are going to put a collar on them. The collar says, I am brown eyes. And they did this. And this is third grade kids. That's what, 10, 11, 12. And in a few hours, kids were getting into fistfights during recess. The blue-eyed kid said I was a bad person uh, and I, I hit him in the gut. And then Mrs. Elliott followed these kids up uh, for, for for many years. And that lesson not only has endured with them, but she has now expanded it. Uh, she's quit her job as a third grade school teacher. I actually had her come to Stanford. Um, I paid her salary for a week to lecture on, on this uh, research. And now what she go, she does to corporations, she goes around the world. And the interesting thing for any of your uh, listeners or teachers who want to do this, she says, take any uh, kind of attribute that some people can do it and some can't, and you make the people who can't do it, you make that a sign of inferiority. So, for example, put out your tongue. Everybody puts out, the you line them up. Now, curl your tongue. It turns out some people can do it, some people can't. And then she looks up and says, okay, uh, all the people who curl their tongue uh, go, go to the right, all the people who can't go to the left. People who can't curl their tongues, research shows they are inferior. And, you know, and then she does the blue-eyed brown-eyed thing, and it's absolutely brilliant. within minutes, the kids put in a p- position of superiority, start making fun of the other. This is not; I mean, these are adults. Start making fun of the others, saying, uh, "Sit in back of the room." Uh, whenever they answer a question, they they laugh at them. Oh, what a stupid thing! And there are several videos. I would I would recommend your audience going online. I think I think it's just Jane Elliot. I think it's E L L I O T T. Jane Elliot and it's blue eyes, brown eyes. There's, a, there's, a, I think that I know there's a whole video, a dynamics. I don't know if it's of the dynamics of prejudice. But again, but in our lesson, this is the kind of thing we show that, and then we have people reflect on, you know, uh, in what way do you have you built these ideas, and that other people that you meet, you think before you even see them, you say, oh, they're going to be no good at this, they're going to be good at this, but also think about how people are imposing these on you. The videos you've been mentioning, we will have that in the show
1: notes and in the Daily Helping app as well. Before we wrap up, I want to just jump back. I know you've been working on HIP, that this is a passion project for you. Could you talk to us a little bit about what the outcome research has shown the,
0: the impact that HIP has had thus far. Well, I should mention that although I am 84 going to 85, I have three hip replacements, a knee replacement, carpal tunnel surgery three times. I now discovered I have severe spinal stenosis, which means I'm in pain. Nevertheless, I travel two to three months a year promoting hip around the world. So uh, I'm off in a few weeks to Budapest, where we have our most ambitious hip program. There it's called Hero Square. I went there four years ago. I gave a lecture, and at the end, you know, I said, you know, know, we think almost anybody could be a hero. And many people came up and said, you don't understand. Hungarians are pessimistic. As soon as we hear anything new, our first phrase is, we doubt it. We doubt it will work here and in fact it's working better in Hungary than any place in the world meaning after i did a training of 20 teachers and trainers they now do trainings every single week and there are more than 10000 high schools around high school students around uh, Hungary and 400 teachers who are teaching our lessons routinely and now in Hungary, they are moving into teaching these lessons of bystander mindset, of prejudice, in corporations, in Mercedes Benz, uh, in Telecom, uh, and elsewhere. And then, but also, our program is in um, in Sicily, in Tehran, uh, uh, Iran, uh, in Bali, Indonesia, in in Australia, uh, in, in. We're just starting a program this weekend in Prague, in Bratislavia. So essentially, I go around, I do trainings, but then it's like I'm like Johnny Appleseed. I plant, the, I plant the seeds, and and the uh, other people irrigate and nurture them, uh, and then take it, take it and develop it more fully.
1: Um, Outst- outstanding, in and, and Dr. Z, you've been. Such a huge pillar in modern psychology, and so many people are aware of your your various works. but I'm curious from your own personal perspective, a hundred years from now, what would you want your legacy to be?
0: Well, maybe he created a generation of everyday superheroes that would be one. Secondly, he made us aware of the, of the the extent of shyness around the world and what makes people shy. And more importantly, he devised a, a new therapeutic program that is almost hundred percent effective in making people less shy and more uh, extroverted. And the Shyness Clinic. I so just very quickly. So so that that's what I, I love on, on my epitaph that he created a, a new generation of heroic uh, everyday superheroes and. Uh, he helps shy people overcome their shyness and therefore become more part of the the human social community. And I should, I love should mention, that. why did I do that? I mean, I'm an extrovert, but in 1972, right after I did the Stanford Prison Study, I'm lecturing to my big class at Stanford, maybe 500 kids, and I said, uh, how many of you plan to be prisoners? None. How many of you plan to have a job as a prison guard? None. So why should you care about this experiment? And they said, mm. I said, how many of you are shy? And may- maybe you know, twenty hands go up. Uh, how many? How many of you know you're shy but are too shy to raise your hand? So I'm saying, what's interesting about shyness is that it's one of the few social problems where nobody labels you that you label yourself. You say I'm a shy person and therefore I can't answer. Zimbardo's question. I'm a shy person. I can't ask a girl for a date if I'm a guy. I'm a shy person. Therefore, I can't ask for a raise when I know I deserve it. So shyness is a self-imposed limitation which limits your freedom of speech and your freedom of association, which are the two central pillars of democracy. People have died in wars to give us those freedoms, and now you're giving them up. And so I said, really, if you think about it, in shy for shy people, they are their own prisoner. They put themselves in this prison, but they're the guard who enforces it. They know you can't do you know you can. And so with that metaphor, I said, although I am not shy, I want to encourage doing new research on shyness. Because in 1972, there was none, zero, no research on shyness except in little kids. Uh, developmental psychologists studied shyness but only up to the age of adolescence. So we started a Stanford shyness project. I got a a grant. We did research, cross-cultural research, uh, laboratory research. And then after a few years, my Stanford students tell me, hey, we know enough to start a clinic to help our friends who are shy. And so we started a clinic and we called it experimental clinic because since I'm not trained as a clinician, I couldn't do it, but it's an experimental clinic. And then we then moved it into the, for the staff. And then we moved in the community and that clinic that's shyness clinic is still in operation at Palo Alto university near Stanford. It's a clinical training program. And so I should mention the other thing I did is I created a shyness inventory, not a scale, which really says, let's analyze, you know, why, when are you shy? How extremely are shy? Who makes you shy? What situations, what kind of people, how do you react in this, so what we're able to show is shyness has three major components. And once we identify that in treatment, we can focus on on which of those three is the main source of your shyness. Sometimes it's one, two, but sometimes all three. And the therapy can be focused in on that. So for some people, it, it's all cognitive. I'm too fat. I'm too dumb. I'm too stupid. I'm, I'm unlovable. Nobody would like me. So essentially, we're going to do cognitive behavior modification. For some people, it's not cognitive; it's affective, emotional, physiological. I blush, my my heart r- races, uh, I, I get, I can't breathe uh, uh, properly when I'm in these shyness-inducing situations. And so, for them, we, we're going to we teach them meditation, we teach them some self hypnosis, we teach them physiological control mechanisms. For others, it's not uh, in the body; it's not in the in the thoughts; it's in social skills. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to do it. They don't know how to start a conversation. Uh, be, they don't know how to be a good listener, even. So we teach basic social skills, as you would, for example, in a drama class. So so we have these three modules, which make up our, our, our therapy program. So it's very it's very directive. It has nothing. We don't do any psychoanalytic. We don't say, where did the shyness come from? You know, when, nothing about your history. It's like... How does shyness affect you right now? In what situation? What kind of people? And also, would you like to overcome this? Now, clearly, if people are going to come for therapy, they're there because they want to reduce it, overcome it. And we have been incredibly effective. I mean, 80% to 100% with, in, in many cases. And of course, we, it, 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 uh, since it was experimental, at the end of, uh, I guess it was six or eight week sessions, we we bring them all together and we have various projects where we show, we put people in a situation where they have to ask for information, where they have to ask for directions. Uh, we even created um, a sock hop, a dance, where girls sitting on on one side of the room and guys on the other side. The graduation is the guys have to ask the girl to dance, the girl has to say yes, and you have to actually dance. So it's, it's an unusual kind of uh, graduation ceremony, but it was really wonderful. That's fantastic. And I could talk to you forever,
1: but we are getting close on time here so as you know i like to wrap up all my shows with a question i ask every guest who's been on which is could you share with us your biggest helping dr z that is the single most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after listening to this episode today
0: make someone else feel special slash make some else, someone else you meet or know smile move out of your comfort zone of focusing on yourself in an egocentric way out into the world of promoting sociocentrism. So those are those are the biggest things and people don't do that only because it feels awkward because everybody has this kind of classic shyness. But once you do it you change the world.
1: Outstanding. Well I really enjoyed having you as a guest and everything you said
0: was was terrific dr z where can people find out more about hip a heroic imagination i never remember if it's dot org or dot com so we have a wonderful website uh, heroic imagination Is it-